Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Most Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Patty Heenish has hosted Patty's Mexican Table for the last decade in an effort to present the full range of Mexican food. Today, she tells us about some of Mexico's lesser-known culinary traditions, including seared white beans and sweet-lined chicken soup. 
She also explains why a pressure cooker accident felt like a rite of passage. So many homes have pressure cookers in Mexico, but all of them have more than one accident story. You know, <laughs> like I got a pressure cooker when I got married and like the second or third time that I used it, I was making pinto beans and they exploded and it took me weeks to clean that up. And I never, ever wanted to use a pressure cooker ever again. Later on in the show, we whip up a perfectly gooey Swedish sticky chocolate cake. And Alex Inews argues that store-bought pasta is sometimes better than homemade. But first, it's my interview with Brandon Cook. In his book, Cheers, he offers up toasts in 80 languages, from Latin to Tagalog to the fictional languages of J.R.R. Tolkien. Brandon, welcome to Moke Street. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I'm very happy to be here. So we both like J.R.R. Tolkien, um, but you, um, you, you got in pretty deep. Because <laughs> you wanted to write a fantasy novel as a teenager and actually began studying ancient Babylonian to use as a base for your project. I did, yeah. And I have to correct you there. I actually wrote two when I was a teenager. Oh. But um, absolutely, yeah, with Tolkien, I had been reading his Hobbit when I was younger, and I just saw all of his uh, language stuff that he had been doing, and I thought, that looks like fun. I could do something like that. So that was my very first foray into language learning. And uh, it was maybe a little ambitious for a sixth grader to try to pick up ancient Babylonian. <laughs> so let's talk about Tos. Uh, the one that I thought was most common but most interesting was clinking of glasses. And you had mm. different stories about the possible origins of this. Yeah, and I think probably the most famous is this, uh, I don't, it may be a legend or a myth more than reality, but um, the story goes that back in the day, all of these Anglo-Saxons were kind of paranoid about being poisoned. And so what they would do is before a drink, they would toast the glasses together in the hope that the wine from their glasses or their drinking horns would spill out and therefore poison everybody so that people would be disassuaged from wanting to poison them. But there's a couple more stories as well. And one of the other ones would go that around Christmas time, there would always be like a surplus of devils around and that the people, they would clink their glasses because this would kind of echo the sound of clinking bells from the church. So that would scare the demons off. And then the one that I found really interesting was this one about all five senses and that when you are drinking wine, you have the feel of the glass and then you have the smell of the wine and you have the taste of the wine. And then you also put the clink in there to have the sound as well. So let's just do some some quickies here in terms of how other people toast in different places. All right. Well, there's all sorts of toasts from everywhere you go. I spent a lot of time in China, so we can start there. And your Chinese word for toast is ganbei, which literally means empty glass. So someone will raise their glass, everybody says ganbei, then you chug your glass. If you go north, however, you're going to find in Japanese, they're going to say kanpai, also dry glass, but the toasting culture is quite different because it's so important for these cultures to show extreme respect to your guests that when you kanpai, you're going to be clinking glasses, but your host is probably going to to lower her glass a little bit lower than the brim of your glass, which is a sign to show respect. So the mm -hmm. proper move will be for you to then lower your glass a little bit 
below her glass to show her respect there. And then what she's going to do then is going to lower her glass a little bit more. So, <laughs> so Where does the, this end? I ask. Uh, on the ground, probably. <laughs> on the ground. But there is a way to curtail it, and it is that when she's trying to lower her glass again, you go ahead and sneak in the kampai before she can lower it anymore. And you sneak it in with a clink, and that tells them that, okay, oh. it's done. We've honored quite enough. How about Prost? This one threw me. Uh, it's from the Latin Mm-hmm. Uh, so explain that. Yeah, so it stems from a Latin meaning proceed, like kind of to good things. And there's a famous Oktoberfest ditty that's sung in Bavaria in a Bavarian dialect of German that goes, I'm proceed, I'm proceed, der Gemütlichkeit. And they're actually using the word proceed kind of in the same sense that a Latin speaker would have used proceed. 2,000 years ago. Uh, But the Germans also say Prost, and they always look eye to eye when they say it. Well, well, since I have relatives um, who are from Austria, every time there's a toast with my in-laws, it's Augenschauen, right? Yeah, exactly. Augen meaning eyes, Schauen look. So you have to look at some of the eyes. If you don't, you're in big trouble. But you actually said it's worse trouble than I thought. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I had to actually learn this the hard way. Um, I was actually living in Austria with a host mother, and uh, I was maybe about 19 years old, and she was giving me a toast and reminded me, Algen zu Algen, and I asked her why, and she uh, gently warned me that it was seven years bad sex if I didn't. So I was very careful then on to make sure I got the <laughs> eyes right. My in-laws were kind enough not to mention that. Um, well, th- this next one, just reinforces my feeling that the Russians have a more literary culture than most of us. You said there the tradition is a Toastmaster begins a toast. It evolves into an anecdote, which then has a moral. And so in other words, it's a much more elaborate approach to the toast. Yeah, yeah, the Russian toast is kind of like a giant tangent from your drunk uncle, um, kind of gilded. And yeah, there is a moral, there's a whole story to it. But um, you have a word, zazdorovye, which is to health in Russian. But if you ever say that to a Russian, they'll kind of gently correct you and be like, yeah, that's it. But that's not the whole story. So I actually, I lived in Russia for about a year, a little over a year, and had a lot of experiences where we would sit down and have a few drinks. And my friend gets up and he would say, друзья мои, my friends, Yes, toast. And then he'd start talking about his uncle from like so many generations ago. Oh, he's told him to do something or other. And by the time he finished the toast, we all kind of forgot what the original point of the toast even was. <laughs> so anything else that we should carry away from this discussion that I can use at my next uh, cocktail party? Well... I was talking with some of my Nigerian friends, and um, part of their culture would say this word, ekelidiri, and that's kind of like Thanksgiving. It's kind of like a blessing or more like you know, wishing these good things on you. Hmm. Um, so how about an elvish? <laughs> well, which elvish do you mean? Uh-oh. I don't know. Are there different elvish languages? There are. There are. Yeah, that's amazing. Tolkien designed two forms of Elvish. And there is an Elvish called Quinya, which is like high Elvish, like your Latin or your Sanskrit of Elvish. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Get your differences, man. This is important stuff. (laughs) And he has another one called Cinderin, which is like your more demotic Elvish, kind of what you like your street Elvish. But the word I know is Almein. And uh, I just assume that it means Elvish cheers. Well, now I... 
I can enjoy more cocktails because I can toast longer in different languages. <laughs> Brandon, uh, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. It was such a pleasure to be here. I'm That was Brandon Cook. His book is Cheers, Around the World in 80 Toasts. Now it's time for my co-host Sarah Malt and I to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, glad to see you. Thank you, Chris. You know, I recently interviewed Stanley Tucci, and we talked, obviously, about Big Night, right, his breakthrough movie. And the last five minutes of that movie, as you remember, he's making eggs, and there's almost no talking, which is one of my favorite scenes in any movie. At the beginning of the scene, people are far apart, and as the scene evolves, people get closer and closer. And finally, he's sitting next to someone, and he puts his arm around them. And it's sort of this coming together and this acceptance of what's happened in the rest of the movie. But the question is the eggs. And he referred to it as a frittata. And he was essentially making scrambled eggs. And I said, isn't frittata thicker? And it goes into an oven, et cetera. And uh, he said, no, there is another type of frittata, which is essentially egg scrambled in a skillet. And it's not baked. It's just done it, essentially scrambled eggs with maybe some flavorings. I never heard of a frittata being anything other than a thicker, essentially omelet that's finished in the oven, right? No, I'm baffled, frankly. He looked like he was really a good cook in that scene. It was quite impressive. So I guess there's more than one frittata. Wow. There you go. That's news to me. Let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Karen. How can we help you? A while back, our local pizzeria made cauliflower pizza for us. And uh, my husband was raving about it. So I thought maybe I'll make some cauliflower pizza, make it at home, and it'll be a lot cheaper. (laughs) The cauliflower pizza that they make at the pizzeria is nice and crisp. I tried twice. The first time, there was a considerable amount of water still left in the cauliflower after I cooked it. But the second time around, it came out very nice. I put it in the pan, and my husband was like, it's not crisp enough. So I thought, you know, what could I do to make it more crisp? And then I thought maybe what they do, the pizzeria, they use the gluten-free flour and they mix it in with the cauliflower rice. So the thing about pizza that I think that's so appealing is that you have a variety of different textures. The bottom of the crust is different than the inside of the crust. I think the problem is in a professional oven, I don't know if it's wood fire or not, but you're getting up to 900, 1,000 degrees. And I think you probably need that amount of heat to really dry that crust out and make it crispy. My guess is if you have a 500-degree oven at home, you just don't have enough heat. I mean, Sarah, do you agree? Well, you know what? I did want to ask. So you have the riced cauliflower, right? And what else did you combine it with before you smushed it out? Right. I put egg in it, Parmesan, a little salt and pepper. I think that's it. Okay. And what temperature did you do it at? I think it was about 450. I was even going to suggest something else, which is to cook it at a lower temperature for a longer time so it dried out Mm -hmm. more. Chris, do you have anything else to add? 
Yeah, go out and get real pizza. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I did, the whole idea of cauliflower pizza is oh, just so. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. He's it, a purist. I, I just, I, I'm not on board. Sorry. Well, it's very, I listen, I absolutely adore roasted cauliflower. <laughs> I love cauliflower. I like eggplant, but I'm not going to make a pizza out of eggplant either. Anyway, so. Well, Karen, if you feel like I'm a tribe. I'm with you, Chris. Hey, good. Hey, who was that? That was my husband. Good for him. You can't beat a nice, just regular cheese pizza. Okay, let's just agree. Life is too short. When you find someone you like, stick to it. Well, thank you, Karen and husband. <laughs> thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Benglin Hart. I'm from Jackson, Wyoming, and we're here visiting in Boston. Oh, Chris's neck of the woods. So how can we help you? I've had a sous vide for a couple of years. I've been relatively successful with it with poultry and some pork items and vegetables. I have tried it a number of times with a leg of lamb, boneless, and have had poor consistency results. I've tried dry rubs. I've tried a wet marinade before I put it into the sous vide. The sous vide is usually 130 degrees for 24 hours, and it comes out tasting fine, but the consistency of firm canned dog food. Oh, gosh. That's rough. I do finish it under the broiler to try to get a crust on it, but the consistency, fresh or the next day, is still unpalatable. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Well, I'm not a big sous vide maven, but I am somewhat familiar with a recipe that Kenji Lopez-Alt did. I think the problem is that you're cooking it way too long in the sous vide. Chris, you agree? Yeah, I would say no more than five or six hours, but it depends, of course, how it's boned out and how it's tied and how thick it is. But I would say, you know, a fourth that time, something, ballpark, six hours maybe. Okay. Four to six, something. Recipes I got were off the net, and they all had, you know, for a four to five pound boneless leg of lamb that period of time. I'm concerned about overcooking, and I'm also concerned about not cooking it long enough and getting sick. Right. First of all, let's just say that if you leave something uh, between 80 and 140, that's the uh, temperature zone. zone. That's a danger zone. So since you're cooking this to, you said, 130 or something, but you're letting it sit under 140 degrees for a very long time. So I would say the sooner you get it out of that sous vide, the better in terms of safety. Now, you're not taking much risk with a leg of lamb, but I would say six hours. The other way to do it, which is how I do steak, is put it in a low oven, 225 to 250 oven, bring it up to 100 degrees internal, and then finish it on a grill or a pan or a very hot oven or a broiler. I do cook my steaks just as you say, and you know maybe the sous vide should just be bagged for legs of lamb. I don't have a problem with that either. All you want to do is bring up that internal temperature evenly. And there's also a little science. It's almost like you're turbo-aging the meat when you get around 85, 90, 95 degrees. You let it sit there for a while. It really does add flavor. You can taste it in a blind taste test. Could I ask one other question in the same line of a sous vide? Sure. Should the meats always be thawed or can they be put in a frozen I would have them thawed. I would too. The time you're going to spend in the sous vide is going to be a really long time. Right. You really don't want things like meat sitting in that in danger zone danger for a zone. really long time. Okay. Thank yes. you very much. And uh, I look forward to maybe coming back to one of your in-person classes in the future. Well, at least stop by the office. We're on Milk Street. I know where you Love are. to see you. Thank you both. Yeah, take care. Thank you. Thanks, George. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. 
If you need help with dinner, just give us a ring anytime. That number, of course, is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is uh, Beth from Brookfield, Illinois. Hi, Beth. How can we help you today? In college, I worked in the salad department of an old school, like Route 66 restaurant. So okay. one of my duties there was uh, stemming bags and bags of spinach for salads for the salad bar. So since then, I've always stemmed spinach. But I noticed that this is something that's never mentioned in recipes. and In salads I eat at restaurants, it's not stemmed. So is this something that's a personal preference, or is there a reason to stem or not to stem spinach besides just saving time? To stem or not to stem. I think what has changed is most of the salads that you find are baby spinach these days. It's really, there's no right or wrong way. It's a matter of personal preference. I mean, the stems are perfectly edible. What I would do if I got a big bag of spinach at home is I would take off the stems because I don't like chewing on them, but then I'd chop them up and add them to whatever else I was eating chopped up because then they'd be, you know, in smaller pieces. But let's see what uh, Chris has to say. Well, it's like parsley, right? I mean, some parsley stems are small and fragile and tender, and other ones are, you know, you could build a hut out of them because <laughs> they'd stand up to the elements. I think you're right. Baby spinach not a problem. just depends how thick they are and how you cook them, too. If it's raw salad, obviously you're going to want to stem them. But if you're going to steam them or something, then it's not a, really a problem. So, but let me just ask you a question. Now, this is a Route 66 style restaurant, or was it actually on Route 66? So it was actually on Route 66. Oh, cool. So we got uh, a lot of different business, and we had kind of your traditional. We had a dining room. There was a coffee shop. There was a bar, and then they would always have a big salad bar. So, what was the name of the place? It's called the Tropics. And- it's in Lincoln, <laughs> Illinois. Really? That's really cool. Tropics? Were there tropical drinks, too? There was. And outside, there was a big sign that had a palm tree, and they played, you know, kind of like Hawaiian-style music. I love this. So did you really look back fondly at that time? When I do see different things about Route 66, it uh, brings up the good times I spent in the hot kitchen every summer while I was in college, you know, working my way through. That sounds really (laughs) cool. That must have been a fun experience. I worked in an all-night Greek diner, including on the graveyard shift on Saturday night when all the crazy people would come in. I had to wear a day-glow orange uniform and nurse's shoes. And I have to say, it was one of my (laughs) most fun jobs, and it was grueling. So, Beth, I hear you. Sometimes those... Wait, 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 what was the fun part? The orange costume? No, it was just the characters who came in. And it was the camaraderie. It was really the camaraderie, you know, because we'd get slammed and all these strange people would come in and we had to bond together, you know? It's like MASH. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Beth, thank you for taking us down memory lane. Yes. Thank you for answering my question. Sure. Take care. (laughs) Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Poor woman calls up asking about spinach stems, and we're talking about Route 66. And we go and off on a tangent. Your orange day glow Greek diner episode. Yes. Oh, God, it was wild. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next is my conversation with Patty Yenich. That's right up after the break. Hi, this is Rose Hadabaugh. Since I've started working at Milk Street, my cooking has really gone up a notch. I'm making fast, easy, bold, and really interesting food for my family. Learn more about Milk Street membership options at 177milkstreet.com slash plans.
I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's really good.
This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Patty Yinich, host of Patty's Mexican Table on public television. In her latest book, Treasures of the Mexican Table, she shares recipes for local specialties that remain mostly unknown outside of Mexico. Patty, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm delighted to be on Milk Street with you. So let, let me start with a weird question, because I, I, I think you wrote about this at some point. Someone once said mm-hmm. to you, I think earlier in your public television career, that you don't look Mexican or look Mexican enough, which, I, which mm-hmm. is kind of like gobsmacked me. So what does that mm-hmm. mean? I know. And you are starting with one of the best questions and one that actually partially led me to switch careers. I don't know if I've told you this before, Chris, but I was trained as a political analyst and I worked on themes that had to do with strengthening democratic institutions and civic culture and the ties between the U.S. and Mexico. And then I switched careers and I thought, hey, I want to explore our cultures through food, because what does Mexican taste like? What does Mexican look like, right? right? right. So it's funny because I've gotten the two things. Like, you sound too much like a Mexican (laughs) because I have the thick, heavy accent from having, you know, been born and raised in Mexico. And then I also get, you don't look like Mexican. (laughs) And that has just opened the door for me to say, let me show you what Mexican is. And not only to people north of the border, but but to people south of the border too. If there's something that I've learned is how little Mexicans know about ourselves. Well, I I wanted to ask you about that because when people talk about Mexican food, I mean, there's no way you could possibly define it. It just depends where you're talking about, right? So when you're talking about Mexican food, first of all, I think it's very important to recognize that Mexican cuisine is one of the mother cuisines. I mean, it always includes some kind of beans, some kinds of chiles, always tomato and tomatillo, always onion, always herbs. And then, of course, the corn masa or corn tortillas in one way or another. And then there's a level of intermarriage between the different and very diverse native Mexican cuisines and its intermarriage with Spain, you know, because Mexico was a colony of Spain for over 300 years. So we have these incredibly rich, delicious make of people in Mexico that people don't know about Syrians, Lebanese, Asians, Africans, Caribbeans, Jews, and all of them have left the mark in Mexico. Or what's more, Mexico has found a way to embrace them and make their things very Mexican. So, you know, as a Mexican, even if you're from a region and you taste food from another, you can taste it, oh, even though I don't know these that well because it's not from my region, it tastes like Mexico. I mean, I was in L.A. recently, and I did a taco crawl, and I, I tasted tacos that, I, you know, I've never in my life tasted. Are we just, I mean, you're not scratching the surface, but 
Are most of us just starting to scratch the oh, surface? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Chris, we are all. Even the Mexicans that have devoted our lives to do this. So in talking about tacos, I mean... You could have a Taco Tuesday be an everyday taco and for a hundred years not repeat the same taco. Even if I live, you know, a hundred years, it will not be enough time right. because every time I go back to share or explore a region that I've dedicated years to, I find that right. there's new things. To give you an example, when we went to film in Oaxaca, it was like four years ago. And I was telling the team that came with me, they're all American. And I kept saying, just look at the colors in Oaxaca. Right. They're unreal. You've right. never seen such blue. You've never right. seen such red. You've never seen such yellow. And I was talking to someone from there and they were telling me, yes, like you're not crazy, Patty. Like <laughs> it's the combination of the air and the way the sun hits that space of mm. the country that the colors seem yeah. so intense. And connecting to the wonderful question that you asked me before about just scratching the surface, you know, w when I first started, I really wanted to share what I knew and what I missed. And now I am most exciting about learning along with my audience. And it's that exploring together and finding out together and saying, hey, I didn't know this, I didn't know this. Well, I totally agree with you. I can't watch my old shows because right. I realized I, I how either. little yeah. I knew when I when I stepped yeah. off the plane. Yeah. The only thing that's a comfort to me is that I've realized that no matter where you go in the world, the food changes from household to household almost, not, not even village yeah. to village. So I don't think anybody, no matter where they live, really knows the, f the full extent of their own country's cooking. So yeah. everybody's learning all the time. And so let's talk about techniques for a second. Here are some things I've noticed. And I, I, I see mm -hmm. pressure cookers used a lot. Uh, is the pressure cooker something that's uh, common throughout Mexico or just in certain <laughs> so, places or what? <laughs> this is a great question. Um, and I'm laughing because the pressure cooker is the one thing that you are sure to get on your wedding night, <laughs> okay. you know? Pressure cookers are a huge deal in Mexico. Yeah. And the funny thing is that so many homes have pressure cookers and use them, but all of them have more than one accident story. <laughs> you know, like I got a pressure cooker when I got married. And like the second or third time that I used it, I was making pinto beans and they exploded. And it took me weeks to clean that up. And I never, ever wanted to use a pressure <laughs> cooker ever again. But yeah, it's very common to have meat be cooked in one or another kind of broth. Mm. And then from there, you make a sauce. And with the sauce, you season that broth and you make a guisado. Yeah, I, I just found that a lot of people were cooking the meat and then, as you said, finishing it with a sauce. It was interesting. I, I was cooking with someone uh, a couple of years ago. And he made a sofrito, but added it at the end of cooking with the beans instead of at the beginning. Yeah. Is that, is that something that's just something he, he thought up? Because I thought it was brilliant. No, that happens too. Okay, well, yeah, yeah, th that's yeah. such a smart yeah. idea. How come the rest of us haven't figured this out? <laughs> no, you know, I think it's very common to do the base and for the beans right. where you will do the onions, one right. chili or another tomato, tomatillo, or sometimes even one meat like bacon or chorizo and then add right. the already cooked beans. But as I was exploring for my new cookbook, I found these bean dishes 
that are seared. So to give you an example, mm. in Campeche, there's this large white bean dish where the beans are cooked just until tender. And then they're seared with scallions and ground pumpkin seeds. Mm. You would think it's kind of Italian or Spanish or something, but it turns out that it is very ancient in Mexico. Or another example that I was also very surprised was this green bean dish where the green beans are cooked in a fresh corn sauce. So you... You know, like I live and die for my blender. And I think we can say that about most Yeah, can Mexicans. I just say most, every kitchen yes. I've ever been in Mexico had a blender and used it for everything, right? Everything. Yeah. And we have it on the countertop and we never put it away. Like wherever you find an electrical outlet, no matter where you are in Mexico, the first thing that we leave is <laughs> not a TV, but a blender. <laughs> so let, let's talk about a recipe that... Every culture, almost every culture, has chicken soup um, mm -hmm. because it tells you a lot about the culture. You have one with chickpeas, which sounded fabulous. Ah, it's so good. El caldo tlalpeño. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think Oh, you're like asking me the best ever questions because just by focusing on chicken soup in Mexico tells you so very much. You can find so many homes that start the week making caldo de pollo because we, we're going to use that chicken for doing tons of other things, antojos, enchiladas, taquitos, sopes, etc. But then with that soup, depending on the region, you know, Mexicans, we love dressing things up. I think that is one of the characteristics of Mexican cooking, no matter where you are in the world. Like we love to dress our food up with garnishes, with sauces. And so you were talking about the caldo tlalpeño. The broth is flavored with a little bit of chipotle, And then it has some vegetables and chickpeas. And then you dress it up. You can add diced avocado, cilantro, onion. But then you get a version of sopa de pollo that people die for in the Yucatan. That it's called sopa de lima. And there they use lima, which is that sweet lime, which mm -hmm. is that very ugly looking citrus that looks like it's just dirty on the outside. And it has this incredibly perfumed taste. But then again, it goes garnished with something crunchy with tortilla strips. So I think one big thing about chicken soup in Mexico is that it can go from the really simple, just chicken broth where It's typical if you have a cold or don't feel well eh, to like the very dressed up um, sopas de pollo. Uh, cheese and shrimp. Now, I know some cultures put cheese with shellfish. I, I know you do occasionally. You want to tell me why it's great? Because I, I have this thing about cheese and shellfish. I mean, I... Yeah, I will fight for that. I thought you would. I will fight for that okay. one. Okay. Tell me, what do you have against cheese and shrimp together so I that I can it's, prove you wrong? It was probably a terrible culinary experience early in my childhood, so maybe that's it's maybe it's highly <laughs> personal. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll just stop at the okay, shrimp. Okay, wait. Wait. Okay. Wait, let me tell you. Let me let me Okay. So, one of the best ever shrimp tacos that I've ever eaten Um, are called Tacos Bravos, and they're from a man. His name is Toño Contreras, and what he does is 
he makes this chile de árbol salsita, which is a sauce that's very rich in tomato and some chile de árbol and oregano. That's simple. And he just sears the shrimp with a lot of butter and salt and pepper just until they're crisp and brown on the outside. And then he throws some tortillas on the griddle. He covers the tortillas with the tomato chile de árbol salsa until that sauce becomes kind of crusty and barbecue-y. He adds mounds of melty cheese and the cheese starts melting onto the tortilla. It oozes out of the tortilla and creates a chicharrón de queso. And then he adds the plum shrimp with that sauce. And then he makes a double stack of that. You know, you, you know, P- Patty, I just have to say, I didn't have a chance. <laughs> Good. I mean, you, you, just, you just took the cheese and shrimp and, and just hit a home run. Okay, that, okay, I yield. Patty, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, you convinced me to put cheese on my shrimp and many other things. Uh, and thank you just so much for being on the show. I hope we do it again soon. Thank you. That was TV host Patty Yinich. Her book is Treasures of the Mexican Table. Patty Yinich is often told that she does not look Mexican. Well, that's because Mexico is a big place. Oaxaca and Puerto Vallarta have little in common in terms of what's for dinner. And Mexico City, with 9 million inhabitants, offers everything from pork tacos to triple cream cheesecake and sourdough pizza. Mexico, like most other countries, is not really a place. It's a collection of households. Every family has its own culinary history and also its own welcoming table. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Swedish Sticky Chocolate Cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. I've made lots of chocolate cakes. I've never made a Swedish sticky chocolate cake. Why is it sticky? And why is it Swedish? (laughs) Well, you're going to want to make this cake because right now this is my favorite dessert to make. It's super simple. It's like a giant molten chocolate cake. So it's sticky because the center of the cake is kind of gooey, almost like a molten chocolate cake. And the edges are kind of brownie-like. What's great about it, it's super simple to make. It's just whisking together some ingredients. And it's probably stuff you already have in your pantry. So this is essentially a one-bowl cake? I mean, you don't have to cream butter or anything? That's right. Super simple. We made a couple of tweaks to what would be a traditional Swedish sticky chocolate cake. We brown the butter so we get a little bit of complexity and some sort of caramel notes to the flavor. You whisk in some cocoa, brown sugar instead of white, then whisk in eggs, flour, and some chocolate chips. Put it in a nine-inch springform pan and put it in the oven. So is the texture... Sticky? What's the meaning of the word sticky? So I would say it really more means gooey. So on the inside of the cake, it has kind of, I wouldn't say it's runny, but more like a gooey texture, kind of like a molten chocolate cake, not quite as runny. Because of that really particular texture, it's a little bit tricky to get the baking just perfect. So 
where you would normally bake this in Sweden, you would put it in the oven at a really high heat and bake it for just a short period of time. We actually found the opposite was a little bit better. So we lowered the temperature to 325 and let it bake for about 30 minutes. And you want to bake this until the cake just springs back around the edges. This is not a cake where you want to poke a toothpick Hmm. in the center because if it's dry, you've completely ruined the cake. (laughs) Well, I think that's true. I mean, just to riff on chocolate cakes and when they're done... I think chocolate cakes are done when they're not totally dry because the more you cook chocolate, the more flavor actually ends up in the air, right? That's not right. in the cake. That's right. I think underbaking chocolate cakes, quote unquote, is always a good idea. Yeah, especially important here. You said test the edges, not the center. Exactly. Which tells you a lot. Lynn, thank you so much. Swedish sticky chocolate cake, one bowl, half an hour. Sounds great. Thank you. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for Swedish sticky chocolate cake at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Alex I News rethinks homemade pasta. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Bridget Ruthman in Sandusfield, Massachusetts. How can we help you today? I have a beautiful small herd of dairy cows, and the milk is so really wonderful. And I've made the things that you make, you know, the mozzarella, the ricotta. But I'm wondering what you would recommend for tempting maybe some hard cheeses. And I don't have a cheese cave, and it's a little intimidating to think this is a three-month process, and I want to do it right. Well, a lot of my neighbors in Vermont have taken to cheese making. When you get into aged cheeses, I know it's a little tricky, but I know all my friends who've done this have started small, and they've had a lot of success. I have a dream of making Manchego, but I know that's with sheep's milk, and I think I can substitute a really creamy cow milk. So these are Jerseys. What else do you have? I just had a Guernsey cow freshen two days ago. And boy, if you really want to taste milk, try Guernsey milk. It is just so phenomenal. It's like drinking liquid ice cream. There's all sorts of groups of people and associations in New England. And the people I found are extremely helpful. So I would just go find somebody who's done this and spend some time with them. That is exactly what I was going to say. I mean, people I know who became cheesemakers, that's how they did it, is they went and apprenticed or spent some time. And I believe there's a Massachusetts Cheese Guild. Yes, I had that thought. And the nuns at the Abbey in Bethlehem, St. Regis, have done some of this. And they actually traveled to France to learn about it. And I thought I might spend some time there. Oh, why not? Yeah, definitely go to France and learn. Okay. Learn there. I, <laughs> Sarah I, just perked up, I'll by the way. I'll come with you. It's, yeah. yeah, why not? Can you help milk my cows while I'm gone? I would love to. <laughs> I've milked cows for years you know, and years as a kid. I grew up milking cows, and I got my ticket punched yeah, already. Uh, yeah. I'm done. But maybe you can get some young people in who want to learn about taking care of cows. You know, there's, that's always a possibility. Bridget, I hope you make it to France, and please let us know. I will try. Okay. Best of luck. Yeah, good for you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you're in a cooking rut, give us a call, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Kathy from Worcester, Ohio. How can we help you? My question is regarding some baking I've been doing. I've been making mostly cakes, quick breads, and muffins. 
And I find that the recipes I use are far too sweet and heavy for my liking. So I take a number of liberties, including reducing the amount of sugar and fat. I'll add an extra egg. I'll use some cultured dairy products like yogurt or kefir with the milk. For example, I recently made a dozen blueberry muffins and I used a third cup of sugar, two eggs, two tablespoons butter, two tablespoons vegetable oil, and about a third cup of kefir in the liquid. And I've done that with other uh, products as well. They rise well, they're light, they're moist, and they have a nice crumb. I just kind of play around going by look and feel, but I'd like to know how low can I go? What's the minimum amount of sugar and fat I can use and still get good results? First of all, you're right. Most traditional recipes are much too sweet. Two, I think a muffin, because it's relatively small, you don't have a big structural problem like you would with a nine-inch cake pan. So Uh if you're going to pull this stunt, the best way to do it is with something small because the structure problem is not as big. Three, sugar is hygroscopic, which means it attracts moisture, which means as you reduce sugar, it means that over time, that cake will end up being a little drier, right? Right. And four and out of the hard part is how much sugar. You could always reduce the sugar by 25% or so and probably be okay. You might even get down to 50%. I mm-hmm. would start with 25 and then go from there. But it sounds like you are intrepid, which is great. I mean, <laughs> the other thing I can do is suggest Joanne Chang. She's from Boston now. She started something called Flour, a bunch of bakeries in the Boston area. They're fabulous. And I think she wrote a book called Baking with Less Sugar. Oh, um, okay. She's you know a Harvard graduate who's also a baker. So uh, she's got some street cred from both sides of the street. Baking with Less Sugar is a book you might want to pick up. Sarah? You know, it sounds almost like you don't need us because (laughs) you're doing your own experiment. You're doing it over and over again and tweaking it and figuring it out, and your instincts seem very good. So I'd say just keep doing what you're doing. The only thing that makes me nervous is when I read about how with baking you just have to be so exacting, and I'm not being very exacting. I presume you're keeping track of everything you do and what exactly you're adjusting and how many tablespoons or teaspoons or cups or whatever. So as long as you're keeping track and you're liking the results, you're doing great. I'm impressed. You could probably teach us something. So Yeah. Yeah, good for you. Oh, I yeah. doubt yeah, that. Uh, <laughs> keep, keep it up. Keep yeah. it up. Thanks, Kathy. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Take Bye-bye. Care. This is Milk Street Radio. Next up, it's French food scientist Alex Inews. Alex, how are you and uh, what's up in Paris? All good in Paris, but recently I've been facing a new problem. It feels like I'm always talking about my problems with you, but it's doing me good, so I'm going to keep doing that. I haven't changed my race. <laughs> okay, so my problem is about carbonara pasta, okay? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, that's a crowd pleaser, right? Everybody loves a good carbonara. So I'm all for having my kids discovering genuine Italian dishes, but it turns out that on weeknights, eh, it's complicated. So my kid would just go like, is this like an Italian dish? And I would just, because eh, I can't lie to him. I say, it's not a carbonara. Well, I, I was just going to say, just just say, yeah. I can't say, yeah. I can't you do can't. this because my kid you is exactly like me. And he said, oh. are you sure that? And then I would just say, okay, so it's not a, a real carbonara. <laughs> this is a carbonara-ish. 
So we're we're not going to end up with pasta with scrambled eggs and cheese, are we? No, no, okay. no, no. no. I, I, sure. I wouldn't do that. This is a line I wouldn't cross. Okay. So instead of Italian cheese, I go French cheese. Instead of uh, you know the right premium pasta, I, I go for any random pasta shape, like basic dried pasta from the supermarket, and probably a few other blasphemies for Italian. I would say, but for me, I'm fine with it because I know what carbonara is. I mean. I think I do. And that's exactly my point. Recently, I was in my studio and I thought maybe I should start practicing the real carbonara dish one more time just to make my mind clear. Yeah. So, so carbonara is basically some sort of a creamy, eggy, cheesy pasta with pepper and bacon bits, more or less. And for pasta, well, you have different options. But in this case, I thought... Well, since I want to pay justice, I'm going to go homemade pasta. So you fry up some guanciale bits, that's the pork cheek bacon. Then on the side, you mix up some pecorino cheese with a bit of parmesan cheese with a whole egg. And then you crack a little pepper and you add a bit of pasta water in there as well. Drop the pasta in water, in boiling water. I mean, cook them until they are almost done. And then you basically dump the pasta inside the frying pan with the bacon and you also dump in the sauce that you made, the creamy cheesy sauce. And that happens off the heat because you don't want to scramble eggs. You mix that up and you get beautiful, nicely silky coated pasta with crispy caramelized bacon bits. That's the theory. But things didn't go that way. <laughs> it looked great. And I started tasting it. Nothing. How is it possible? Like when I say nothing, I meant I'm not getting, you know, the thrill that I usually get when I do carbonara. Why is that? I take another bite. You know what? I think the dish that I just made, I have to say it's a little boring. Why is it a little boring? I use the best of the best ingredients I could find. And then I, I was just, you know, sitting in my studio looking at all this with the packet of flour in one hand, the one that I use to make homemade pasta. How can you do better than this? And then on the other hand, I had, just for the video, the uh, the packet of pasta, of supermarket pasta, the one that I use sometimes on weeknights. And I realized that one of the packets says pasta di granaduro. That's mm -hmm. the basic supermarket dried pasta. But the flour that I've got in the other hand said farina, the grana tenero. What, what, what does tenero mean? Exactly. So the flour that I use is basically tender wheat. Ah. The other one, on the other hand, the dried pasta, they are made with hard wheat, right. with durum wheat. That's what Italian call grana duro. And, and so I started doing a few Google search and, and I realized, I mean, they are almost completely different species with completely different characteristics. One of them is yellow, way higher in protein. The other one is lighter and lower in protein. They react different to cooking. And obviously, most of the pasta in this world, the one that you, we can buy in grocery store, they are being made with durum wheat, with grana duro, so with hard wheat, which is, by the way, on Wikipedia called simply pasta wheat. And then I realized, oh man, so that's why I had no emotions. Can I just say that an American yes. would never say if they tasted something, I had no emotion. What would you say then? I, it, it tastes bad. 
or has no flavor. <laughs> You're going like I had no emotion. I just wanted to point that out. That's just I mean, for, for the me, record. I was yeah. tasting it, and uh, you know, usually in in a good dish, usually you either have a game of texture or acid versus. Right. sweetness or saltiness versus something else. And in this one, there was nothing going on. And the problem was coming from the pasta. I would have mm. never thought that me making homemade pasta would be the problem. I thought it would be the plus. Well, it turns out when you're making pasta yourself, using classic flour or tipo zero zero farina and eggs, you will never be able to achieve the toothsomeness of the Durham wheat pasta. You will never be able to get al dente pasta. And that's why most Italians buy dried pasta. Exactly. And I thought there was, you know, a scale of one being better than the other. It turns out that's not the case. One is simply different than the other. I mean, I love homemade pasta, but they have a purpose on their own. They should be used when you're not looking for structure in a pasta right. dish. If you're looking for bounce, for bite, for toothsomeness, then by all means, go for dried pasta, the one that we find in supermarket. Maybe don't go for the lower shelf, maybe go for something good. But that's just funny for me to see that once in my culinary journey, homemade is not really better than the thing I found in supermarket. Uh, Alex, so, so now you're going to go out there and be a spokesperson for the local supermarket, right? <laughs> That's the next thing. <laughs> I could do that. <laughs> Forget this homemade stuff. Just go buy at the market. Alex, uh, for once, you do what everyone else does, which is you bought it at the store. Alex, thank you. Thank you so much. That was YouTube host Alex I News. He's also author of Just a French Guy Cooking. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, take a free online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.